Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting the natural world. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence and worldwide environmental issues. For today's coffee feature I'll be talking about bird and wild coffee, listen to the end to find out more. In this episode, I talk with Rob Dunn. Rob is an American ecologist, biologist, and author. We talk about the dangers of a future reliant solely on technology, Rob's latest book, A Natural History of the Future, adaptation, agriculture, and much more. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, all the way from the US. Um, Usually, we begin with getting to know you a bit. Could you... Tell me a bit about you and where you first started showing an interest in ecology and the natural world. So so I I grew up in the state of Michigan in the U.S. and I grew up in a rural environment. And I I mean, I was an outdoor kid, like many ecologists. I grew up outside. I grew up catching things, um, catching lots of things, you know, putting them in jars, putting them in aquariums, watching them. And then I went away to college. And when I went away to college, I thought I'd be an economist in part because I grew up in a small town. And, and so there weren't that many jobs that I really was familiar with. And there were features of economics that interested me. And then I ended up at uh, a college with many different majors in the US system. There's some flexibility to move among them. And while I was starting off in economics, I found this building filled with people who in their uh, offices had muddy boots and nets and skulls and and I didn't know when I first saw them quite what they were but I I knew that they were me um and and so as as an undergrad starting out I started to realize that some aspect of what I enjoyed doing as a child was something that one could also do as an adult And, and starting off most of what I uh, was intrigued by were sort of aspects of natural history. And through time, I would come to realize that it was actually uh, the interface of natural history. What do animals do? What do plants do? What do microbes do? Uh, what are the details of their lives? It was the interface of that and the general rules of ecology that really uh, intrigued me. And and once I discovered that, in a way, it was like connecting economics and ecology because the there are aspects of the search for general rules in ecology that are very much like the similar phenomenon in economics. That sounds really similar to to kind of my um, love of nature and how I got started, but obviously going down the creative route rather than the scientific one. Um, yesterday, I received a copy of your latest book. I'm very grateful for your publicist for sending me that and, and to, for connecting us as well. Um, sadly, because it is just yesterday, I haven't had a chance to get stuck in. But the thing that really jumped out to me from the get-go was the first line of the accompanying press release. So I'll quote it for my listeners. Um, there is an Elon Musk view of the world that suggests we're separate from nature and we can outcompete nature with technology. This is not true. So for those who aren't familiar with the work of people like Elon Musk and other sort of big tech billionaires, what do you mean when you describe this particularly um, technology-based viewpoint? So, yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, 
So I think it has two aspects. So one aspect is the view that if you can define the technology of the future, that you've defined the future. And, and so that if, if we can imagine how we're connected digitally and we can control that, then the, the rest will sort of flow around uh, that um, infrastructure and worldview. And it's, it's a view in which technology really has this ultimate power. And so I think that's, that's one aspect of it. And you see it when you look at depictions of the future. I mean, very often depictions of the future actually don't have any living organisms in, in the depiction, or you have a human and maybe a domesticated animal, so a human and a dog, or if you get a little bit of green life, it's typically inside a glassed-in building. And, and so to me, that's part of that vision. And the second part of that vision is, is really the idea um, that in achieving that vision, we can sort of cut ourselves off both from nature and from the rules of nature. And for me, the most emblematic version of this is Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or pick your billionaire talking about uh, colonies and other planets and colonies in space and the idea that um, we can fix our earthly problems through the combination of technology and somehow starting over. And what I argue in the book is that this is a kind of fairy tale because the truth is no matter how creative we are technologically, we're still wed to the biological realities of our bodies and the biological realities of, of the world around us. And so um, I always think it's interesting to think about when, when the astronauts are up in the International Space Station, all of their food still comes from Earth. That food depends on um, the microbes in the field, it depends on the pollinators in the ground. All of the microbes on the bodies of the astronauts come from typically their mothers. Uh, others of those microbes come from the soil. And, and so even when we think we've most isolated ourselves from the realities of the living world, we're still, we're still, we're still intimately connected to them. And my argument is that that will continue to be the case, that the, there's no suggestion that we're, we've become clever enough to imagine a world that's otherwise. Mm, yeah, I definitely, I definitely would agree, especially in the, in sort of looking back over the way I've grown up. Um, and yeah, a lot of my listeners will be very familiar with that uh, idealized version of the future that you've described, but not even, it's not even an idealized version. It's a lot of a kind of, um, fantastical world for a lot of people to imagine but definitely somewhere that I for one would not really be happy I think with that much technology around us and relying on it so heavily obviously um so your latest book A Natural History of the Future focuses really specifically on the the laws of biology and and listening to our bodies and working with the planet why do you as a ecologist and or just generally as a scientist, why do you favor this approach over over one based on technology? What really calls you? Well, I think at its simplest that we, we keep running ourselves headlong into disasters when we ignore the rules of of life. And we ignore what ecology already knows. Um, you know, to take 
COVID-19 as an example. Uh, the origin of COVID, the virus that causes COVID-19 still a little bit shrouded in mystery. And, and yet for 15 years, disease ecologists have been predicting an outbreak of a coronavirus in almost the exact region um, that the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 comes from using the sort of general rules of ecology. And, and so here's an example where we kind of already know what's coming to some extent. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know exactly where it will be. We, don't, we can't precisely predict the species that it will be. And, and yet we, we see some features of this, but we ignore uh, the ecological insights. And so when I look around the world, I see all of these places that we, we don't pay attention to just the basic ways that the ecological world works. And I mean, another example would be uh, that we, we're now seeing all kinds of problems associated with um, humans not getting the right microbes during birth and after birth. All sorts of immune problems, skin problems, uh, digestive problems. And for biologists who study non-human animals and their microbes, that this would be the case was anticipated 50 years ago. Uh, but it was not mainstream. It was a kind of idea that you would hear about if you went to a meeting with termite biologists. And in, I, I don't know about in the UK, but in the, in the US, termite biologists aren't asked their opinion publicly very often. And, and so part of the impetus for, for thinking about this world, uh, the way that I do and, and writing about it, is really to lift up some of these things we already know, not because they're simple answers to our problems, but because uh, they allow us another way for thinking about our problems that I think should be part of the discourse. And for as much as when you hang out with ecologists, they tend to believe that there are ecologists all over the place, that there were so many of us. The truth is we're a pretty small group. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a really, really good point because and it's really refreshing to actually have a, a proper ecologist and a proper scientist talk about this stuff on the podcast and, and just with me because I've you're right in saying that um definitely in the UK we don't call on specific scientists very often. In fact I don't apart from obviously you know um virologists and epidemiologists um during the pandemic i haven't actually i can't remember the last time i saw a scientist give their professional opinion on a national news platform in the no and, and that's a great example because that we hear from virologists right now but if you talk to those virologists for the last 20 years nobody was calling them mm. uh and they had plenty to say but but once we hit the pandemic once we hit the problem then everybody finds their phone numbers yeah, And so we, we need to find a way to, to listen to some of these insights before we hit the worst problems. Yeah, um, I think I think that kind of that would that definitely can be applied to, you know, the climate and ecological crisis that a lot of the world is facing right now. Um, climate scientists and environmentalists and ecologists have been kind of you've probably felt this have been kind of shouting into the void for literally decades. Um, and just not really getting anything back. And it's only 
I guess I could say it's only now that they're being listened to, but they're still not. They're still being, um, you know, profit and technology is still given being given that big priority over over people like yourself. Would you agree? I, I do agree. And interesting in the um, the issue of homonyms. So you said profit and technology, and I thought you meant P R O P H E T. Um, oh, okay. But uh, but. Uh, I think it works in the sense in that we've we've turned profit into a kind of profit, mm. uh, and what technology sees, we build, um, and and so I, uh, yeah, I really think we need to be thinking about these ecological and and I'll say that the thinking about the ecological world uh, to me means not just thinking about what we're doing with with rewilding parts of the UK or what we're doing with backyards. But it's about every part of our biology. And so medicine needs to be thinking about ecology. Um, waste treatment needs to be thinking about ecology. All of these ways that even invisibly our lives intersect with the rest of the living world, all of those rules operate even if we're not paying attention. And so just to give you a simple example, so uh, wh where are you in the, in the UK, George? Uh, I'm in, in Cornwall in the southwest. Yeah, so I, I can't remember what the water system for Cornwall is like, but so m many of the water systems in the UK, like nearly all of them in the US are chlorinated or they use mm. chloramine. And, and so this has become necessary as we've uh, established big populations, often where the aquifers aren't very big or where we've polluted the aquifers. And so chlorination saves millions of lives by preventing um, pathogens from uh, hanging out in your drinking water. And, and so big benefit where we need it. But the added reality is that when you chlorinate water, you don't kill all the species in the water. And what general ecology would teach you, like even an intro ecology class, is if you don't, if you don't kill all the species, the species that uh, are able to survive that treatment are likely to cause some kind of problem because now they have no competition. Competitive exclusion, we call it. And in fact, this is exactly what we see in chlorinated water systems. And, and so if you go to your uh, shower head and, well, if you have the kind of shower head where you can unscrew the top and you look in it, there's likely to be a biofilm, which is a kind of apartment that bacteria poop for themselves. And, and so if your water is chlorinated, that little apartment of bacteria in your shower head is much more likely to contain non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which for immunocompromised people can be really problematic. And, and so here we have this situation where because we have really high densities and or messed up our aquifers, we have to chlorinate. But when we chlorinated, we inadvertently introduced this uh, totally anticipatable problem, uh, but that was surprising and that nobody really picked up on for 30 years. And so now we have to rethink, okay, given that we've caused this problem by not paying attention to the ecology, how do we go back in and fix it? And, and so there are all these places in our daily lives where you have questions like this, where there's just a little bit of ecology that makes it all make more sense. Um, and I think we're not very aware of it. I mean, I think people aren't even aware that 
that the water that comes out of their tap is full of life, right? I think we probably think it's sterile. And so that's the other thing the book does too, is to kind of raise up these daily ways in which we're interacting with the living world, even when we don't think we are. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, because I think it's, I mean, the UK definitely can be used as a case study for that pretty much everywhere you look. I mean, yes, a water, um, I've actually just looked it up where you're talking, uh, all water in uh, the United Kingdom has to be legally sterilised. Um, so, yeah, it will be the same across the country. But in terms of just um, something as simple as uh, deer, for example, we have a lot of deer in the UK um, and sadly they have to be killed they, uh, for a conservation purpose. They have to be killed because sort of, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, we decided it was a good idea to kill all their natural predators. So wolves, lynx, and without realizing the ecological ramifications of that in, you know, a hundred years later. Yeah, that, that's an excellent uh, sort of parallel example, George. I love it, right? So the, the non-tuberculous mycobacteria in your shower head are, are very analogous to the deer in your backyard. And so now we have to control both of them because we screwed something else up 50 years ago. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great comparison. Yeah, I think it's, um, that's something that I get talked to, uh, I, well, people talk to me about a lot um, as someone who doesn't eat meat as well. They're like, oh, but what about the deer? We have to kill them. And uh, it's always quite an interesting discussion to have about, you know, well, we only have to kill them because humans made the mistake first. Um, and I mean, obviously, something similar along those lines with uh, is agriculture. Agriculture is generally a big problem and it will carry on being a big problem and, unless we can do something to to help it move along. Um, I'm not a fan of this and I don't think you are by the sounds of things, but monoculture crops and intensive farming, uh, obviously it's a big problem. We can't solve it overnight or just sort of make uh, monoculture farmers give up their livelihoods instantly. But do you think from an ecological perspective that there's any hope for us to reevaluate how we use land and bring kind of small scale practices like polyculture farming or no dig gardening to up to a global level? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, um, there, there are many cases in thinking about the future where my hope and my sense of the best thing we can achieve are, are out of sync. Um, and, and so my hope, I, I would love to see scenarios where uh, many more local regions are able to use uh, farming using diverse crops together to achieve their food needs and where there are strong connections between farmers and communities. Um, I think there are lots of advantages of those sorts of connections um, in terms of sustainability, in terms of human connections between where the food is coming from and uh, our daily meal. At the same time, uh, I'm very aware that the, the likelihood that we change globally where the average calorie is coming from, um, well, it's, it, it's pretty unlikely that we shift globally to 
diverse polyculture systems. And, and so I think realistic scenarios to me are scenarios that balance the benefits of both and, and do so in, in ways that are in both cases as, as attuned to sustainability as possible, um, which is far, far from where we are today. Uh, but I think, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, a it's a tricky question because the aspirational goal and the concrete reality are very out of sync. And, and I would say one of the things that I think about with the concrete realities is that especially in the US, but also um, in much of the developing world, um, farm size continues to go up. And as the technological, um, as advances in tech farm technology increase, the farm that you will need, the farm size you will need in order to justify the costs of those technologies will continue to go up. And, and so I, I think that, I mean, that's, it's gonna be a very important, the, that technological shift in agriculture is gonna be a, continue to drive farms to be bigger and bigger. Um, and then the other side of this, and this is the sort of dark thinking, but is that as we, we move toward more and more climate catastrophes, big agricultural companies will be better prepared than governments to buffer those catastrophes. And, and, and so if you're a big ag company and you have fields around the world, um, if you lose all your crops in Panama, you just move where you're farming. And, and so they buffer their risk through this global distribution. Um, and so I think the economic and technological drivers really push in that direction pretty hard. Uh, and so the policy levers necessary to move to the sort of agriculture you're talking about are, are going to be, need to be pretty strong. And my guess is that they're gonna be very regional. Yeah, I, I'm inclined as, you know, as a pessimistic as a viewer is, I am inclined to agree with you, especially looking at the current state of our um, national government in, in the UK. Um, it's, it's not one that I think is very ecologically minded at all. Um, and yeah, I think regional is generally, in my sort of very unprofessional opinion, the way forward for most uh, climate and ecological solutions because yeah just um, sort of national governmental level it, it, the, the wheels of bureaucracy take so long to turn on on things like this um unless we are already too okay, late go ahead, George. sorry i was just going to say unless we are already too late like for example with, with the pandemic again coming back to that you know it's, it's taken so long to get around to the point we need and then suddenly things only start to happen because we're in a state of emergency not because we're planning for it and I guess to go back to a more hopeful thread, mm -hmm. I, I do think that there are ways in which technology and um, and local, more diverse agricultural systems can come together and in ways that are actually globally connected, but where uh, ownership and food sovereignty are quite local. And so, for example, 
there are already apps that allow you to take pictures of plant pathogens on your crops and to have them compared to pathogens in a global database using machine learning. This is a project called Plant Village. And so the, the, your phone will spit back what pathogen it is and, and how you might control it. At the same time, your phone is sending the, those data to scientists who can keep an eye on whether the pathogen that you've seen is actually a new pathogen, the equivalent of uh, a coronavirus for potatoes or, or wheat. And, and so there's this combination of um, local agency in this case and really local empowerment with big data in, in a way that I think is, is going to be extraordinarily useful, both in empowering farmers and in terms of detecting crop pests and pathogens much sooner. Because the truth is right now, I mean, we're, we're at the probably the um, a peak moment in crop pests and path pathogens uh, relative to any other moment in history. They're evolving all over the world. They're evolving because we move things. They're evolving because the area of our farms is enormous. But often we don't see new crop pests and pathogens until they've spread over a, you know, half a country. And so technologies like this actually allow that detection to happen much sooner. And so there are these ways to really synergize ecological thinking and technology. They're not mutually exclusive, but, but I think we're, where we go astray is when we think about technology just on its own. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely an important point to raise because you don't want to completely separate the two. Um, you know, it, it will invariably, especially as continues to be evolve um be a very important part of solutions just you know don't don't lose focus on on the natural ones as well obviously something that we're um we do when we you know produce huge scale crops is we throw a lot of obstacles at, at wildlife and nature and i'd really like to take a, a brief moment to talk about adaptation so some of your work that i've read about recently focuses on wildlife and nature overcoming the many obstacles that humans throw at it um, and there's a lot of species that seem to thrive in inhospitable, inhospitable environments um, obviously some of my listeners will know you know obvious ones like tardigrades things like that um, but more niche I guess you could say more um, unexplored uh, I read a section in your book about mosquitoes could you kind of talk briefly about the human influenced adaptation or so, sorry about this type of human influenced adaptation in different species and maybe use the london mosquito as a as an example yeah and maybe there are sort of two points here i think in the book and one one relates to this sort of idea that we're in this period we're facing the end of nature and and uh, as an ecologist and a natural historian, I mourn the end of you know many species that I've known that are becoming rare or extinct. I'm I mourn the climate disasters we see globally. But the evolutionary biologist in me actually feels a little bit more sanguine in the sense that uh, what's not threatened is the evolutionary process, and what's not threatened is life itself. In fact, the many of the conditions we're creating are actually the conditions that whole suites of species prefer. 
Um, and we see that in really extreme cases. So you think about the worst pollution that we create, uh, I mean, sort of the worst, nastiest oil spills, the hottest places we're creating on earth. There are species that find those conditions to be absolutely ideal. And they're not the ones we want around us, but, um, but they're a thriving part of the living world. And so the, the evolutionary biologist to me finds some comfort in that. It's a dark comfort, but comfort all the same. The other aspect of this is that we can actually see this evolutionary process, which I find in and of itself to be beautiful, sublime maybe, everywhere around us. And it's actually sped up where we live because the areas, the kinds of habitats we're creating where we live are really big and evolution is faster and big kinds of habitat. And because we often create strong selective pressures, we kill some species and inadvertently favor others. Those two things are the recipe for rapid evolution. And so in the example that you mentioned, the underground mosquito, it was discovered during World War II in London that when, when people were hiding out in the underground uh, during the blitz, that they were getting devoured by mosquitoes. And, and so the, the quick question is what those mosquitoes were. And they looked like the above ground mosquitoes, but the above ground mosquitoes are, are Culex pipians um, form that primarily feeds on birds. Here, here underground were these mosquitoes feeding on humans. And what would be realized is that these are two lineages of Culex pipians and the ones above ground are adapted to above ground life. So they feed on birds, they're seasonal. So during the winter, the only the female survives. Um, the, they take advantage of above ground conditions. They sometimes feed on flowers. The below ground mosquito, on the other hand, tends to feed on mammals like humans and rats. It's active year round. Um, the larvae can live in super nasty little puddles. And so it became clear that, that somehow this below ground mosquito had evolved in the, to take advantage of the below ground world. And for a long time, it wasn't totally clear what had happened there. And now it's beginning to look as though what happened is that when humans first started bu building cities in the Fertile Crescent, that this below ground mosquito evolved to take advantage of those early cities and then spread around the world and in cold places moved exclusively underground. And in those cold places, it then further evolved to take advantage of that underground world. But because the London underground and, uh, and the underground systems in Paris, for example, are not very close to each other, and those mosquitoes typically don't fly above ground very often, they're also disconnected and so now the mosquitoes in different underground systems are diverging from each other. And so it's this extraordinary evolutionary story. And then the added wrinkle on this, uh, and, and so I would say most of the evolutionary story is exactly what we would predict from general rules of ecology and evolution. Um, we would predict things would evolve to take advantage of big habitats. We would predict as they become isolated, they would diverge. The, the trick in this and where my, my old natural history mind comes back in and uh, looks at the details is that these two kinds of mosquitoes sometimes hybridize. And so sometimes the male mosquitoes of the underground form come up 
and mate with the above ground females. And it's not even that frequent. And one would say like, this is the most obscure, irrelevant little fact ever, except these mosquitoes uh, vector West Nile. The above ground forms, because they mostly feed on birds, are very unlikely to bite humans and very unlikely to, to uh, transmit it to humans. But the hybrids of the above ground and the below ground mosquitoes like mammals and they like birds. And so they are a great vector for bringing West Nile from birds into humans. And so it's this, this evolutionary story that's unfolding all around us. It's got these beautiful elements, just the, that this is happening, that we can predict aspects of it. And then because we haven't paid it, been paying enough attention, it also turns out to have these, these bad news elements. Um, and if we look at other species, we see similar stories in rats and pigeons and German cockroaches and house flies and almost any urban uh, species that anybody pays any real attention to, we see it evolving in, in this, this sort of way. The details differ, but the general story emerges. And so for the young uh, Darwinian scholars in the UK, I mean, a lot of what Darwin's traveled the world to do, you could now do in downtown London. Well, yeah, I mean, I think for, for yeah, to be a bit hopeful, obviously, you know, West Nile's a horrible illness um, that we don't want, to, don't want anyone to get, but to be a bit hopeful and, you know, looking at um, people don't really look at life very closely in in london they kind of know it's there but they don't really you know nobody i don't think i i've talked to very few people in my life who actually have a passion or a love or appreciation of brown rats or feral pigeons for example um and i don't think anyone really you know that i've spoken to recently um is too keen on on mosquitoes um, but it's a really interesting... You're hanging out with the wrong people, George. Definitely. Not enough scientists, too many uh, photographers who think they're too small and annoying to Well, photograph. I will say, here's a good example. If you look online, there's not a good picture of those mosquitoes. Mm, and so when we, when we go to tell these stories and to think about the life of our daily lives, the, the art is missing because of where we look and don't look. I think that can be said for a lot of... Um, you know, micro species, tiny species in cities. Because um, obviously people are aware of the bigger ones. They kind of just don't like them, but they're aware of them. Um, but some of the smaller, you know, there's a, a huge, I've lived in London for a part of my life and there's a huge amount of biodiversity. It's just really hard to see for a lot of people if you're just rushing around on a busy commute, if you're not specifically looking for it. Um, you Go ahead, George, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, we wrote a paper a number of years ago called The Pigeon Paradox. And The Pigeon Paradox is the idea that, well, it's, it's been shown that to care about conserving species, most people need some interaction with nature uh, that leads them to care. Um, and so this has been known for a while. A number of people have shown it. But the paradox is that as we all move to cities, you know, globally, the average person lives in a city now and soon the average person will live in a mega city. That if, if people are gonna care about nature, they're gonna have to find a way to care about urban nature. 
And most of urban nature, the most conspicuous urban natures uh, often include species we don't like. And, and so what do we do to deal with the reality that people are looking at pigeons and being taught to hate pigeons and yet it's the only real visual connection they might have to the nature around it, them. And so obviously one solution is to rewild our cities and to bring nature back and, and bring back new kinds of interactions, which I'm very supportive of. But I think the other piece to me is that we need to be aware of when these species cause problems. You know, brown rats do all kinds of bad things. But I, th I think we can also find them to be beautiful and um, to find the details of their biology to be awesome. And, and to be able to hold those two ideas in our head at the same time, you know, it's not black and white. That we can both uh, dislike the abundance of, of, of uh, brown rats and appreciate their amazing story. You know, they've traveled around the world with us. Um, They've adapted to cultures. They're rapidly evolving in cities. To me, that can be beautiful. Um, even if I don't like when a, a giant brown rat runs after me down the street. I mean, I, I've always been that odd one out among my, the people I, I spend time with who appreciates those animals and will stop. And you know, I stopped and took a photo of a rat that ran across the road the other day in a small town in Cornwall where I live but I think um, obviously the the first half of that um, research I have come across because it's been I've came, come across it in the UK with children a lot of the time um, there's a, a scientist who suggested can't quite remember his name um, that if a child is not engaged and interested in nature before the ages of 12 it's highly unlikely that they ever will become someone who's has a vested interest in protecting or researching it later in life um but the actual paradox i've uh, never never really explored or come across um but yeah your point i think is is really beautiful and a, probably quite a nice place to slowly not quite end but almost come to an end um do you want do you want to say anything more on that or that's no no probably... go ahead George. yeah yeah so um yeah, I mean, before we, we finish, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I think we've gone gone over some really important things. A um, bit of a little thing that I like to do at the end of each episode is do a quick fire round. Um, so this is just like four questions that I ask all my guests. Um, you don't have to answer it instantly, but it's just a kind of little kind of icebreaker at the end to to get to know you on a more or your, your natural history interests on a, on a more personal level, really. Um, so first question, what's your favorite animal? Um, well, t t I'll go, uh, on the fly, I'll go with Esetam burchellii, which is a, an army ant. Um, makes huge colonies of its own bodies, can contain a million individuals, and hundreds of species depend on the, the army ant, this particular species. So you have beetles that ride their backs, mites that ride their feet, birds that follow them. And so it's kind of emblematic of the connectedness of nature. So I'm quite fond of it. I try and be non-biased on the podcast, but um, that's probably my favorite answer that I've ever had to that question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love those. They're, uh, they're an incredible species. 
um, where's a place outdoors that you like to go and connect with nature somewhere outside that you feel really at home? Oh, well, those are two separate questions for me. But the um, so close to where I live here, there's a park just outside of the city. And uh, it's not the loveliest forest in the world, but it's a forest I know and I can bike to it and I can be in it quickly in the middle of the day. And it's Umstead Park. Um, where in the broader sense? Uh, there, any of the places that I've done extended field work and so I know the organisms better and there's a comfort in knowing the organisms. And so that's true of the desert southwest in the U.S. It's true of some kinds of forests here in the UA, in the eastern U.S. Um, you know, it's true of forests in Central American tropics. That's do I have a um, I've spent enough time working in tropical forests that there's a comfort in knowing the sounds. There's a comfort in recognizing old trees that I enjoy. And it's not so much an individual place, but it's a kind of forest. Um, and then I think in terms of an individual patch of wild place where I feel at home, that's a trickier question. I don't know if I have one of those right now. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's completely fine not to be able to answer it. It's a pretty tricky question. It feels like you're being judgy, George. Come on. <laughs> it's uh no it's it's a pretty tricky question to answer i think i i kind of designed these to be quick fire and then immediately regretted it because i've had some really beautiful extended answers that haven't been been the complete opposite of quick fire i think i had one uh, of I'll, these i'll be more pithy okay go, go. next one <laughs> do you have a conservation hero so by this i just mean someone within your field or your wider area of uh environmental enthusiasm that you really look up to and think should be given a mention yeah that's a great um so w one of my peers liam pinko who's the same age as me more or less um and i've worked with on again off again across the years so uh he's recently moved back to singapore where he grew up and where he was trained and he uh now leads a uh a nature-based climate solutions program that's really making change in Singapore that I think is quite heroic. Um, and so I'll go with Liam Peen for the day. Um, last off, how'd you take your coffee? Oh, black. Yeah, I, I kind of predicted you were going to say that. Um, I don't think I've had a scientist on who, who hasn't said that yet. Um, anyone who's done field work extensively takes it just however they can get it, I've found. Um, yeah, through a little true. bit of uh, market research. Um, so I think we can kind of safely wrap it up there. But before we finish, uh, do you want to plug any, um, you know, where when your new book is going to be officially released, um, what your social media or online handles or how can people sort of have a look at the work you're doing? Yeah, so I think the book's out in the UK today, uh, which I hadn't noticed until you said it. But I think today's the day, the 20th. And you can find my work on robdunlab.com, just my name, then lab.com, and see what we're up to. It, it's been a real pleasure, George. I really appreciate you doing this, this thoughtful work, and it, it's, it's uh, great for humanity, so keep it up. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking the time, because it's um, yeah, always a pleasure to, to hear from proper scientists doing amazing work. It's nice to hear from improper scientists, too. <laughs>
Very true. Yeah, thanks so much, George. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Rob for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his online platforms will be, as ever, in the description down below. So, in today's episode, I'm featuring Bird and Wild Coffee. Bird and Wild are a company that has been recommended to me quite a few times. It's organic, shade-grown coffee that has been shown to increase diversity in plants, insects, migratory bird species, and mammals. There's a whole host of more specific facts and figures on their website, and while it is fair trade and not my preferred direct trade, it seems to still manage to be a greatly recommended coffee that benefits both people and planet. All the links to their website will be, as ever, in the description, so you can find out more for yourselves. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.